Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're continuing with Fire on the Horizon, chapter 2. And the second chapter is called An Ethic of Religious Discourse. So again, all of this is kind of a, a meditation on the Temple Endowment and Joseph Smith's theology or body of revelations and how they reflect on each other. And last time we talked about the idea of how Joseph Smith wasn't a theologian in that he didn't sit down and reason out or logically come to his conclusions about God. Rather, we compared them to sort of like sparks flying off of a flint wheel, whereas they weren't exactly random. They they had a, a common pattern, but they didn't necessarily all jive with one another. And sometimes they superseded, and sometimes they just completely did away with what he had said previously, and other times it would build upon what he did. But anyway, this next part is about how we can discuss God and how we should talk about or relate to God when we're doing these kind of examinations and such. So first off, I guess, how does this fit into your meditation on the endowment? Why does ethical religious discourse come up in that discussion? The ethics of religious discourse is an ethic that arrives in interpersonal relationships and supremely in the relationship that we have with God. So when we're thinking and more than thinking, when we are actually placing everything that matters to us most on the line, trusting that God will be with us, or searching for God to be with us, or wishing that God were with us, then we're dealing with the kind of interpersonal relationship that is both unique, irreplaceable, and fundamentally a matter of the kind of ethic that obtains between persons. And that means that when we deal with deity, we don't deal with him as some kind of intellectual puzzle. We don't deal with our father as if though he were some guessing game as to what we think should be best or what are the best beliefs are to have. We don't go to a person and say, oh, the best person you could be is this, so I'm going to pose on you this view of that I have created of you. Instead, what we do is allow them to reveal themselves to us, not as we wish they were, not as we impose upon them based upon on the assumptions and criteria that we bring to the relationship, but truly allow them to reveal themselves to us so that we can learn not only who they are, but learn deeply who we are in the relationship because we are created in the image of the thou. And so it's basically an ethical judgment. Okay, great. Yeah, so I I see now how that fits into the way that Joseph Smith did, I mean, if we can call what he did theology, but instead of just thinking about the greatest conceivable being, which is a, you know, the way in the tradition that has been thought of, or just logically coming to an uncaused cause, he, he said, rather than me imposing on God, like you're saying, some sort of attributes that I'm trying to, you know, come up with, he let God reveal himself to him. And so that's where that's coming from. Interesting. And that's the difference between a theologian and a prophet. God discloses himself to a prophet. A prophet doesn't need to be intelligent, qualified through study, able to articulate. In fact, most of the prophets bemoan the fact that they're not articulate. They may even have a spokesman who speaks for them, as both Joseph Smith and Moses did. 
A prophet may be somebody who doesn't fully understand the message that he is delivering. A prophet may be someone who is not only still learning, but is imperfectly being called through that relationship to be more truly a loving person than ever before. So it's the way that persons interact with one another again. And this has a certain way of calling to us when we're dealing with God, not to treat God as a mere object, just as we would never treat our parents or our children or people that we truly love as mere objects. That segues into this quote really well. So you say in the chapter, an ethical problem with the way we talk about God immediately arises from our interpersonal commitment to God. A Christian cannot speak of God as if God were just some object of analysis among others. The proper relation to God demands that we approach him as a holy thou. And so now, we've talked about this before, but maybe for those joining us now, let's discuss a little bit about this idea of an I and thou relationship versus an I-it relationship. So, persons are not fungible. That is, it's not the case that somebody else could just take the place of my wife and I would be just fine. Just So, for instance, if I go to the store and I'm looking for a tire, one tire may be as good as another, and I really don't care as long as it gets the job done. But persons are totally unique in that no, nobody or nothing else could take their place. So persons aren't fungible. That's the way of saying that. Moreover, persons are such that in our regard for them, we allow them to be of supreme value to us. We don't manipulate them for our ends. We don't use them as a means to something else. Because whatever purpose we would have, and we use them as a means for whatever we were using them to attain would be less valuable than the person, him or herself. And so when we deal with another person, we're dealing with something that isn't a mere object, not a mere it, not something that we can take and manipulate or use for our own purposes or a means to some other goal that we may have. So it's not the case that I could exploit a person to make money. It's not the case that I could exploit a person for my own ends to make myself look good. Persons are infinitely valued in and of themselves. And every proper relationship that we have that must recognize this value. And what it means is that in encountering persons, we treat them differently than we do things. We encounter them in a different way. And here, the word encounter is a term of art with Martin Buber, the philosopher who first gave rise to the notion of an I-thou relationship. And this notion is also furthered by the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard. But basically what we're talking about is when we're dealing with things, we can take and analyze them and break them apart. And in doing so, we can figure out what they are. I can take, for instance, if I have a radio, I can take it all apart and look at the parts. If I have a frog, I can dissect it and look at what its intestines look like. And I can even have its heart beating. I've done this before, actually. I've dissected frogs while they were alive. I can take a pin and stick it in the frog's brain and see what that does, and see what doing different things to the frog will do, cut off its leg to see if it regenerates. But I can't do those kinds of things with human beings, and that's because human beings are always more valuable in any information than we would get. That's, that was the mistake the Nazis made when they were using humans for human experiments in World War II. Humans are not mere objects to be studied. There's this infinite value, and this infinite value demands that instead of analyzing it, you know, everybody knows you can't dissect a frog without killing it. And that's what happens when we dissect persons and analyze them and use them as things. We kill them as persons and create them as objects to be used for our own purposes. 
But most fundamentally, what that means is that when we meet a person, we encounter them rather than meet them and learn about them. A person reveals him or herself to us. There's much more to a person than their mere physical presence. When we encounter persons, there's a kind of connection, a kind of contact, because that person brings with them an eternal light in life that can inform us far beyond the mere physical presence that they bring to us. Persons reveal more to us when we allow them to reveal to us rather than imposing on them, as I said. Let me give an example. You're in the store, you're a little kid, and a guy with a goatee comes and gets in line to pay right behind you. And I've actually seen this happen. Look, Mom, that guy's a criminal. (laughs) And, you know, the kid is jumping to the conclusion because he's probably seen pictures in books where all the criminals have goatees or something like that, I imagine. But it's the kind of snap judgment that we make about people rather than waiting for them to actually reveal themselves. I actually knew the individual who the comment was made about. He was one of the finest individuals I'd ever known. Unfortunately, in growing a goatee, he looked like a child molester. (laughs) I'm just saying that to show the kind of judgments that we make. And they're nonsense. So when we encounter persons truly as a thou, we allow them to reveal themselves to us rather than imposing on them our prior judgments, our snap assessments, how they work for us, or using them to benefit ourselves because they are always ultimately the most valuable thing in and of themselves. And so their purposes are always our purposes, and it demands of us honoring them and respecting their own freedom in a way that an object could never demand of us in ethical relationships. And then, yeah, so we take that idea of this sacred relationship that we have between, you know, we should have between one another and also particularly between us and God. and I mean, because theology is important, we've talked about that a lot, and like, you know, we we do that to some degree because we don't have necessarily the direct physical presence of God, but you you kind of take an analog of that relationship that we have with God and then compare it to, well, I guess sort of this, you give this analogy of saying like, well, let's say you have a relationship that's sacred, and then within that relationship there are perhaps sacred things that you do that only exist in that particular relationship or should only exist within that relationship and it's sacred within the relationship but outside of it it would kind of just be well i'll I'll read this quote but we're we're referring here to more talking about the temple ritual so that that happens between you and god but it only is sacred because it's within the bounds of this sacred relationship so let me read this quote real quick you say the closest analog to breaking the sacred silence. Oh, okay, I guess I need to do a little more framing here. So and so we have the temple ritual, and in the temple ritual, we, we do certain things, and there's certain things you're not supposed to talk about, and we're told to keep it sacred and not to talk about it. And to do so, we're given warnings that it would break this relationship, or it would be breaking the covenant somehow, and somehow profaning the relationship. And so you say the closest analog to breaking the sacred silence is infidelity or unfaithfulness, like in a marriage. Similarly, if I were to colloquially discuss with anyone as an object of discourse the acts of physical intimacy that I enjoy with my wife, I would be unfaithful to the trust inherent in my marital relationship. By making my intimate relationship an object of discourse, I objectify it. Thus, I devalue and degrade it. Looked at from the outside, my physical intimacies with my wife become pornographic and vulgar. 
If I were to discuss the sexual passion occurring in my relationship with my wife, I would be unfaithful to our relationship. I would transform an I-thou relationship into an I-it relationship. I would profane the holy. Depicting the act of human intimacy from outside of the relationship looks the same whether it involves a caring spouse or a prostitute. The sacred value can be seen only from within the relationship. It is therefore imperative to understand that the value and life of the relationship is wounded when it is made a simple object of discourse. Like I said, that's a, a metaphor for the temple ordinance. So kind of hammer that home for us on how the sacredness of the temple ordinances mirror that. So when we're going to the temple, we're entering into rituals in which we become identified, if you will, with Christ, and we place ourselves into the history of God's dealings with humankind. And in doing so, what we're experiencing is based upon the direct relationship of personal revelation that we have with God. What occurs in the temple is not discussed for two reasons. One is so that my breakthroughs and experiences aren't imposed on another person as the actual answer as to the real meaning of what the rituals or ordinances are, because there is no such actual real answer or meaning. The meaning of a ritual is discussed in the performing of the ritual, in the breakthroughs, the realizations, and the aha moments in doing so. And what is revealed is personal and individual for each person. So if I were to discuss my experience, in a sense, I would be imposing on others, you know, oh, wow, I'm having these wonderful, deep spiritual experiences. What's wrong with you? Or I'm having these wonderful, deep experiences, and here's the meaning of my experiences. So this is what this means. You don't have to delve any further. No further looking here. Just move along. Even more importantly, the means of the revelation is in putting myself in relationship with God so that in the silence he can speak to me. In the actions that I'm undertaking obediently, he can reach me. And in opening my heart, I can then become one who is teachable in the relationship. So what I call a sacred silence is based upon the respect for the relationship and for the nature of learning that takes place within a relationship, the encounter. And so in the temple endowment, I mean, it's not secret. If you want to find it, you can look on the internet in any day and find it. But in reading it outside the temple context, one is ripping him or herself off. And let me say this again. I'm not calling it pornography. I'm saying it has the kind of moral status of pornography because it's like voyeurism. It's like objectifying something that's sacred and ripping oneself off, cheating oneself out of the actual experience of encounter and revelation that occurs in an I-thou relationship to objectify it. And so... What I feel for people who do that kind of thing is that they just don't get it. They don't realize the value that can be realized in this kind of relationship. They don't even have the possibility of realizing it because they profaned it. They don't even realize that it can be realized. It's simply beyond them. And for people like that, it's the same kind of profane matter. They may never know what it is to have an intimate, loving relationship. It's not for me, however, to teach them what it is because it's experiential knowledge. They can only know it by experiencing it for themselves. Well, for me to try to explain it to them would be nonsense and stupidity. It's the same with the temple endowment. To try to discuss my experiences is just stupidity. It's the kind of stupidity of trying to teach a person how to ride a bicycle by telling them all about it. It just can't happen that way. You can only ride a bicycle by getting on a bike and maybe crashing a few times and then getting the sense of balance. And once you've learned it, it may stick with you forever. <laughs> 
or it may not. And so what I'm saying, bottom line, is that the sacred silence arises from the very value inherent in the relationship, but it's even more than that. The very nature of learning and encounter and revelation in the relationship can only occur from within the relationship. It can't be done voyeuristically. It can't be done objectively. It can't be done without commitment and passion. It's like when I see anthropologists who look at the rituals of other cultures, I just kind of snicker because I know they don't get it. I know they can't possibly get it because it's like taking Mormons to the zoo and putting them in cages and letting people come along. Oh, these are Mormons. They're really weird, but they're interesting in different ways. So keep an eye on them. Doing that is missing the whole point (laughs) of having a relationship with a real person. At base, that's what's happening with temple ordinances. It's a matter of experiential learning for ourselves within an interpersonal relationship where the ethical demands of being in that relationship and the possibilities of learning through encounter of another and what is disclosed in the relationship can only be done from within the relationship itself. All right, great. I'll read this last part to close this out. So you say, It is only when viewed from within the divine I-Thou relationship that the ritual acts have sacred meaning. Then, and only then, can the sacred discourse of ritual occur. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com. 